All right. So, what have we been talking about lately? Spiritual formation, right? Discipleship. We've talked about how do we get it started, right? How do we start? What do we need? What do we do? What's the vision? What's the plan? We talked about these transformative qualities that define life in the kingdom of God and how for many of us, while we're aware of them, they often seem more like elusive ideals rather than things that we can actually grasp in this life. And I propose to you that there is an orderly way to begin this process of formation, spiritual formation, discipleship in your own life that's not complicated or hard, but is in fact the way of rest for the weary soul. We've spoken about the subconscious narratives that we believe and therefore live by, because those are the things that we actually do, and how if left unchecked, these narratives can severely hamper uh, our formation process. For example, the narrative that says those transformative qualities aren't actually attainable right, that they're just elusive ideals, will prevent you from ever really intending to chase after them. Can you see how that narrative would affect you negatively in your formation? <laughs> but last week we spoke about the unique role of the Holy Spirit in your life to guide you into the truth that is Jesus Christ, right? And enabling you not just to think rightly about God, but to begin to think with to be in step, in sync, to gel, right? To have chemistry. Sounds weird when you say it. To have chemistry with God. Synergy is a great word, but I don't think it quite captures what I'm after, right? Uh, but I do love the word. I do love the word synergy. Uh, but anyway, the Holy Spirit is the guide and the director of all of this process, right? And today we're going to look at a third crucial component in your formation. So again, we're in this season of epiphany, or epiphany tide as it's often called. It's the season immediately following Christmas tide in our liturgical rhythm of preparation, celebration, and walking it out, right? As an aside, I'm not sure if you noticed when I first showed the graphic on Facebook in our GC Life group, but I wanted you to see the direction of time in this calendar. Did we get that up? You'll notice, hopefully, that it's going counterclockwise. Why do you think that might be? Hmm, something to ponder. In Advent, we learned to pre prepare for God with us, right? At Christmas time, we celebrated God with us. And then here in Epiphany Tide, we are learning to live within the reality of God with us. Receiving Jesus as a gift, not just for us, but for the whole world, right? In our gospel reading in this season, they tend to focus on the life of Jesus and how he lived the kingdom of God here and now on earth. And the reading this morning affirmed Jesus of Nazareth as the prophecy foretold, but also Jesus knowing the heart of Nathanael before he met him, right? There's that divine quality that pops up. 
and even proclaims, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This ascending and descending is, of course, a reference to the Old Testament story, Jacob, Jacob's vision of the ladder, right? Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28, in which Jacob had a dream of a ladder with angels ascending and descending upon it. That word translated as ladder could just as easily be translated as stairway. And so Jacob's seeing a stairway to heaven. But Jacob is, is familiar with the sorts of stepped buildings, right? Like pyramids and ziggurats uh, of people in ages past and had erected, that they had erected to, to build their way to heaven, right? Trying to gain equality with God, to put themselves beside God, right? To be the masters of their own destiny by their own might. Think specifically again of the Tower of Babel, right? And here in this story, it says, and the Lord stood beside him. Mm. Yeah? Just as we see in Jesus that God has always been the sort of God who would come among us, stand beside us, know us, and we him. If we would have him, right? We do not need to build our way to him but merely lean into what he is already doing here, now, among us. Jacob calls the place of this vision Bethel, right? Or Bethel. Bethel, house of God. And Jesus is alluding to this story, known well by his Jewish brothers and sisters, claiming that he is this house of God, right? That he is the stairway to heaven bridging heaven and earth, and that he, God incarnate, is among us and beside us, God with us, that our access to the life in the kingdom of God is through and by him. But there's something else happening in this passage that I want you to notice that should just bless our little evangelical hearts. In the passage just before this one, John the Baptist proclaims, here is the Lamb of God. Andrew follows Jesus, asks where he is staying, to which Jesus responds, come and see. Right? It's an invitation. Andrew then seeks out his brother Simon, who became Peter, to have him do the same. Andrew says to Simon, we have found him. And then in our passage this morning, Jesus found Philip and said, Follow me. Philip's like, on it. And then he goes and finds Nathanael and says to him, what? We have found him. Nathanael expresses his skepticism, to which Philip replies, come and see. There's this beautiful structure in the telling of this story. I hope you notice it. There is a repetition of phrases that goes like this. Come and see, we have found him. Follow me. We have found him. Come and see. We. Right? We. The immediate response to finding and being found is to make it known to someone else. And the we grows. 
right? Jesus does not call one disciple, but many. To become a disciple of Jesus is to become the we and not merely the I. The I does not go away, but it is subsumed into the we. Yeah? And so this third crucial component in your spiritual formation is this, each other. It's each other. It is the we. It is the absolutely essential role of walking this out together. Come and see, we have found him. We have found him. Come and see. I have mentioned to you numerous times that you have a spirit and it has been formed, right? I've taught you that the things that form you are always coming to you from outside of your own self, predominantly your social context, right? That is the people, places, and ideas you choose to be among, in, and dwell upon. Or put another way, the I is formed by the we, right? In this, you can find a fundamental truth. Spiritual formation is always profoundly social. You cannot keep it to yourself, so it is utterly pointless to even try. If you try, you're doing it wrong, right? Last week, using Jesus' words in the greatest commandment, I taught you that you can consider the human person to consist of these five basic components, spirit, soul, mind, body, and social context. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, or spirit, mind, soul, and strength, body, and love your neighbor, your social context, as yourself. I taught you that while it is outside of you, your social context is still very much a part of you. It's one of the crucial components that make up the whole life that we call you, that, I, that you may call I, right? If our formation involves the renovation of each of these components, then it stands to reason that if we are to be transformed, then our relationships must also be transformed. Worship team, would you make your way back up here? I've noticed in, in recent weeks that I have, as I edit video, I'm like, man, I'm talking way too long. <laughs> I never expected that to be a problem, because uh, I always feel like I don't have anything to say. But uh, <laughs> I get up here, I'm like, man, that was 37 minutes of, of talking. What is that? Like I, I said at first, I'm like, I want to keep my messages to 18 to 20 minutes, right? Like a TED talk. And it just hasn't worked that way. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time, you know. I'm sure that you have heard people say, my faith is between me and God. Perhaps you've said it yourself. Yeah? But I want to tell you in no uncertain terms that if this is what you think, you are sorely mistaken. And you have yet to grasp either of those words. Me or God. 
You do not understand God because God in his Trinitarian nature is a fundamentally social being. And God's very essence is relationship. At the most basic level, God is reciprocal love and rootedness in others. And you do not understand me because you have failed to account for the social aspect of your being. As beings God has chosen to create in God's own image, participating in this reciprocal love and rootedness is a basic human need and therefore moral imperative from God. It is immoral for you to try to do this apart from other people. Hear that. To experience life in the kingdom of God on Jesus' terms, you must do this together. Period. So, this is what I would like for you to reflect upon as we go back into worship this morning. How have I tried to privatize my faith? How have I tried to go at this journey alone in any way? Have I really made an effort to include other people in my formation? Have I made the effort to make myself available to other people in their formation? What parts of me have I not been willing to share and why? Per the usual, switch gears for a minute. Have you ever been pulled over? Yeah. What's the first thing the officer asks you for after he approaches your vehicle? That's your experience. Wow. <laughs> your driver's license, yeah, your vehicle registration and your proof of insurance, right? So the officer, he's already looked up your license plate, right? And knows who your vehicle is registered to. Driving your car is like making a statement. You are claiming to be someone who has the right and capability to operate your vehicle on the road, right? Before he addresses the specific reasons for pulling you over, the officer wants to know if you are who your license plate says you are whether or not you have the right to operate your vehicle, whether or not you have the ability to cover any potential harm you may cause while doing so, right? Why? Because whatever other reasons the officer may have for pulling you over, who you are and whether or not you're even allowed to be there doing what you're doing trumps all of that. It renders everything else moot. Your driver's license or your ID, as they say when ordering a drink, is your unique identifier, right? It tells the inquiring mind whether officer, cashier, or server relevant information about you, what you look like, your name, your date of birth, your address, so on and so forth, right? In other words, are you who you claim to be? Are you who you claim to be? 
Elsewhere in John's gospel, Jesus issues a new commandment and says very specifically that this commandment's fulfillment is one of the surest signs of your spiritual formation. He says, by this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this passage, but before we move on, let's pause and think about this for a second. That's pretty huge, isn't it? By this, this thing is the key identifier of the group of people who claim to follow Jesus. If this thing is not present, then it stands to reason that a person may not really be who they claim to be. Mm. Christ's disciple, or at the very least, that they're just getting started on this journey, that they're spiritual infants, right? In other words, are you who you claim to be? Can I see some ID? That's what we're going to title this message. Can I see some ID? So what could this thing, this key identifier, this ID, what could it be? It could be a confession. It could be like a set of beliefs, right? It could be a particular form of prayer. It could be the clothes we wear. It could be adherence to a particular statement of faith or any number of other things, right? Throughout church history, Christians have given other Christians, as Pastor Larry used to say, the left foot of fellowship, right? That is, they've given them the boot. They've, in effect, excommunicated them from the congregation. They've done this for a host of reasons, from confessions, religious form, clothing, purity codes, statements of faith, and a number of other things based on varied definitions of what constitutes sin. Are you in or are you out? Are you one of us or are you not one of us? But you know what? As far as I can tell, as I've surveyed this, I've never seen someone removed from a congregation for lacking this key identifier. This thing by which they will know us. It's kind of huge, isn't it? Of all the things we choose to exclude or divide over, I've never seen it occur over this thing. How is that? If you're unfamiliar with this passage, I'm sure the anticipation is killing you. So here it is. By what shall everyone know we are Jesus' disciples? By what will everyone know that we are who we claim to be? John 13, verse 34 to 35, it says this, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another, boy, howdy, that just complicates the fire out of things, doesn't it? The mark of your identity in Christ is whether or not you love one another. Crud. We're all a bunch of babies, aren't we? And note here the qualifier Jesus gives. It's very specific. This is not just any sort of love. It's agape love right? See, in English, 
we only have like one word for love, but like in Greek, they have four. <laughs> and like in Hebrew, it's like seven or eight, right? It's, uh, yeah, we use the same word to say I love my wife as we do as I love tacos, right? <laughs> but this agape love, it is, it is the genuine desire for the good of another person, even at your own expense. It's not like how you love tacos or cake because you do not desire the good of tacos or cake. You desire to consume them for your own enjoyment, right? You don't love tacos, you lust after tacos. Full disclosure, so do I. Anyway, it's not like the kind of love where you can just say it and have no real tangible effect on how you live or what you do. It's not loving at arm's length. It's not loving but still condemning. It's not any of that. 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who's a Christian man, who many consider to be the father of a school of philosophy called existentialism. He once said this, the Bible is very easy to understand. Some of you go, no, -uh. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. So here's the very specific qualifier Jesus gives. Just as I have loved you. Right away, we become scheming swindlers again, don't we? But here's what the Bible says. The mark of your identity in Christ is whether or not you love one another like Jesus. So the obvious next question is, well, how does Jesus love? I think you know the answer to that. In another of John's writings, addressing this very question, he answers like this. We know, this is 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 and verse 18. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoa. Whoever does not love abides in death. Ouch. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers. Look out. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And there's that pesky scheming welling up again, huh? Real love, the Jesus kind of love, is self-sacrificial toward the, the end of a, the good of another person. Real love looks like Jesus, after being beaten, carrying a heavy cross down the road and noticing women weeping and saying to them, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and your children. Real love looks like Christ crucified for the very people who put him there. And then having the wherewithal to still say, Forgive them. Forgive them of their ignorance and hate. By this, Jesus says, 
everyone will know that you are my disciples. Self-sacrificial love for one another. That is not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. And again, the idea here in our formation is not to do the thing, but to become the kind of person for whom the thing is the only natural response. It's the only way that makes sense to us.